In 2013, a man named Elwin Wilson died at his home in Rock Hill, South Carolina. He was 76 years old. And normally his passing would not have made the headlines except for two events that occurred in his life. And it was the combination of these two events that caused his death to make the national news cycle. Uh, The first event occurred on May 9th, 1961. Wilson was only 24 years old, and he was at that time a member of the KKK, an organization that in those days was dedicated uh, to racial segregation in our culture at any cost. Wilson and his friends, who were all members of that organization, went to the bus station in Rock Hill, and there they waited in the whites-only waiting room. Uh, They had heard that freedom riders were coming to Rock Hill. In the months and in the weeks leading up to that day, they had observed that freedom riders were going into bus stations and going into white-only waiting rooms, and there they would simply wait to test the Jim Crow laws. Uh, They would typically be arrested, and it was their uh, way of bringing uh, light to the Jim Crow laws of the South. And so Wilson and his friends went into this white-only waiting room ready to confront these freedom riders. A few moments later, two freedom riders showed up, one white and one black. They went into the whites-only waiting room, and Wilson and his friends confronted and physically beat these two men. They did not fight back. In fact, these two men only shielded themselves from the blows, the punches, and the kicks. Uh, They refused to to fight back against Wilson and his friends. The police were close by and they showed up and it was pretty obvious what had happened and who had been at fault. And so they asked these two freedom riders, do you want us to press charges? And the freedom riders refused. They said no, that their intent was to bring light to the darkness of segregation. And if that meant that they need to suffer a beating or two, then so be it. That statement by those freedom riders and their refusal to press charges struck a chord deep inside Elwin Wilson. He hated these men. He hated all the freedom riders. He hated what they stood for. And when they would not return his hate with hate of their own, when they refused to fight back, when they refused even to press charges, it did something in his heart. And it began a process in his life that would eventually lead him to becoming a follower of Christ. And to the point that he realized that Jesus died for the sins of everyone, regardless of the color of their skin. He renounced his racist views and he left the KKK. However, that is not why his death in 2013 made national headlines. The reason that his death made national headlines is because of what he did next. In 2009... He made an appointment to go and to visit with a congressman in Washington, D.C. It turns out that the black freedom writer that he had beaten was John Lewis, a man who would later go into Congress and serve the state of Georgia in the United States Congress. He called his office and he made an appointment and he went in and he sat down in his office and privately he apologized to Congressman Lewis for what he had done nearly 50 years before. 
They then later went on CNN, and Mr. Wilson was able to publicly apologize, and they were able to talk about the events that had happened in 1961. What was so amazing was not just the fact that he went and apologized, but what they reported the first words of Congressman Lewis were to Mr. Wilson after he apologized. Mr. Wilson said, I am so sorry for what I did. And Congressman Lewis said, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you now, but understand this. I forgave you 50 years ago. And he said, while your apology means so much to me, you need to understand that I forgave you 50 years ago because I refused to allow bitterness to rule in my heart. And I refused to allow those who had hurt me to then dictate the rest of my life. And so I forgive you now, but I forgave you then. Now, regardless of whether you agree or disagree with the political views of John Lewis, I think all of us in here would agree that that is an amazing story. It is an amazing story about the power of forgiveness, about the power that comes in John Lewis and his friend refusing to react and what that did in the heart of Elwin Wilson and how he then became a follower of Christ. And even beyond that, how that action uh, and his refusal to hold bitterness in his heart would change John Lewis's life to the point that he could continue to move on and ultimately serve in the United States Congress. There is something that is amazingly powerful when we are able to forgive those who have hurt us. We are continuing today our series on friction, and so far we have talked about how to avoid conflict, how to de-escalate conflict, and today we're going to talk about what happens when conflict becomes bad, when the blow-up happens, when you're hurt or someone else is hurt, and how sometimes we have to go and apologize and ask for forgiveness of those that we have hurt, and as we will see today, there are times that we've got to go and we've got to, uh, or we've got to be willing to forgive those who have hurt us. If you've got a Bible with you, we're going to start with one verse. This is found in 2 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, 2 Samuel is in your Old Testament. It's right after 1 Samuel, Samuel, right before 1 Kings. And in chapter 17, here is a verse that we find. Verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his hometown. He put his house in order and then hanged himself. So he died and was buried in his father's tomb. This is an odd verse that's tucked into a story about a conflict between King David and his son Absalom. It's this odd, strange verse about this man who doesn't have his advice followed, So he saddles his donkey, goes to his hometown. There he puts his affairs in order and then goes out and ends his life. I don't know about you, but I have given a lot of advice in my life. And many times that advice has not been followed. I might have been disappointed, but I've never been suicidal because someone failed to follow my advice. 
I've even had those very close to me not follow my advice and it might have hurt me, but I never remember ever considering ending my life over the fact that they had not followed my advice. What was going on in the heart and mind of this guy, Ahithophel, to cause him to want to end his life because someone had not followed his advice? To get context for this verse, we need to back up just a few chapters to 2 Samuel chapter 11. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we find part of the story of King David. David was king over Israel about a thousand years before Jesus came. He was considered to be a very faithful, a God-loving king. He was normally uh, very diligent in following what God would have him to do. However, he made mistakes, and his biggest we find in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, Here's what we read in that story. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. So here in this story, we find the very first words of the author are, at the time of year when kings go off to war. It was the springtime, and most often kings are leading their troops into battle. However, David was not. David was not where he should have been, which was with his troops at the battlefront. Instead, David was in Jerusalem, and while he was in Jerusalem, one evening, he decided to go to the roof of his palace. And from the roof, he could observe all that was happening in the city of Jerusalem below him. And from that vantage point, he was able to look into the private courtyard of one house in particular, and there he spied a young, beautiful woman taking a bath. His passions were aroused, and his mind began to race, and so he called a servant and said, I need you to do something for me. I need you to go and do a little bit of investigation. You see, there's this house. What you do is you walk down Main Street, take a left on Eden Street. It's the third house on the right. Go to that door, knock on the door. There is a beautiful young woman who lives there. I want you to go and to get the 411 on the woman who lives at this house. Servant leaves. A little while later, he returns and he says to King David, Yes, you're right. There is a young woman who lives there and you're right. She is absolutely beautiful. And I found out her name. She is Bathsheba. And she is the daughter of Eliam. However, King David, I've got some bad news for you. Here's what else I've discovered. She's married. I'm so sorry. Her husband is Uriah the Hittite. Now, she said he's off at war. He's with the army. He's in the battle. He is serving where he is supposed to serve. But... She's married. I saw the ring. 
I saw in the foyer the wedding portrait. You know, it's clear. She's married. I'm so sorry, King David. Well, by this point, David doesn't care. His passions have been aroused. His mind has been racing so much that it's caused both his good sense and his moral compass to leave him. And he says, I don't care. Go and get Bathsheba. Bring her to the castle. So the servant obeys. He's the king. He's got absolute power. He goes and says, the king wants to see you. Well, she has to obey. He's the king. He's got absolute power. And so she comes to the palace. They spend the night together. And the next morning she leaves and goes back home. And David thinks, well, that was great. That was fun. Her husband will never have to know. He is off at war. What he doesn't know won't hurt him. No harm, no foul. Let's just move on with life. Until a few weeks later, David gets a note with two words that would forever change his life. Dear David, I'm pregnant. Signed, Bathsheba. David at that point puts into plans a way to cover his sin. And these plans escalate and escalate and escalate to the point that ultimately the only option he thinks he has left is to have her husband Uriah killed while in battle. He dies. Bathsheba spends the appropriate amount of time mourning her husband's death. And then she moves into the castle and she marries David. And David thinks, yeah, I know the timeline's off a little bit. However, now we're married. She'll have this kid. I've covered up my sin. I have solved my problem. The only problem was, and it's the same problem all of us have, even if nobody else knows what we've done, God knows. And there are consequences to our actions. There are consequences to sin. So God sends a man named Nathan, a prophet, to David. And Nathan confronts David over his sin. And David, to his credit, at that moment, uh, repents and asks God for forgiveness. And Nathan assures David, God has forgiven you for your sin. However, what you have done has set in motion a chain of events that will cause incredible chaos and heartache in your household. While God has completely forgiven you, there are consequences to what you have done. Doesn't take long before Nathan's words proved to be exactly true. A little while later, David's son Absalom mounts an army and rebels against David. He marches upon Jerusalem. He marches upon the palace there. And David is caught off guard and has no choice but to gather the troops that he has with him and his government. And they exit the castle. They leave Jerusalem. And they are on the run. And Absalom is able to take over the city and to set up camp in the castle where his father David had ruled. At that point, entering into the picture is a man named Ahithophel, this advisor to King David. And the Bible says that Ahithophel was incredibly good at his job. That his words were like the very words of God. That, that everyone wanted to seek the advice of Ahithophel because he was so 
incredibly wise. And he had served as an advisor to King David, but Ahithophel quickly lets Absalom know that yes, he was part of Team David, but now he's happy to be a part of Team Absalom. And if there's anything that he can do for this new king, he would be happy to do it. Here's what we read next. Absalom said to Ahithophel, give us your advice. What should we do? Ahithophel answered, sleep with your father's concubines, whom he left to take care of the palace. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself obnoxious to your father, and the hands of everyone with you will be more resolute. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and he slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. This is exactly what Nathan predicted would happen. Nathan said to David, look, you did this thing in secret. You thought no one would know. You kept your sin hidden. However, your son, your family members, they will do things to you that will be in plain sight for all of Israel. And here we see that coming true. Absalom goes to the roof of the palace. There they set up a tent and Absalom, in view of all of Israel, sleeps with his father's concubines. After that, Absalom comes back to Ahithophel and says, I like the advice you give. That was great. What else you got for me? Here's what he says next. Ahithophel said to Absalom, I would choose 12,000 men and set out tonight in pursuit of David. I would attack him while he is weary and weak. I would strike him with terror. And then all the people will, uh, with him will flee. I would strike down only the king and bring all the people back to you. The death of the man you seek will mean the return of all. All the people will be unharmed. This plan seemed good to Absalom and all the elders of Israel. So here's what Ahithophel and the others know at this point, David is on the run. He had to quickly leave Jerusalem, quickly gather his forces and leave the castle. And he and his troops are in disarray. And so Ahithophel says, gather 12,000 troops. David is not far away. Chase down David. Get David. Don't attack the other troops. Get David. And then you will be able to secure your spot as king. Absalom and all the elders hear this advice of Ahithophel, and they say, that's a good plan. That's what we think we'll do. However, another man enters the picture, a man named Hushai. And Hushai gives advice that is different than the advice of Ahithophel. Hushai says, no, that's not what you need to do. What you need to do is to establish yourself as king first. You need to get your army together. You need to get a battle plan together. And once you are organized, then go out and you can face the armies of David. And then you can take David. Absalom and the elders consider that advice. And they decide to take the advice of Hushai and reject the advice of Ahithophel. So here's what we read next. The verse we talked about earlier. When Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown. He put his house in order, then hanged himself. So he died and he was buried in his father's tomb. 
Here's the question we asked earlier after we read this verse. Why would Absalom not following the advice of Ahithophel cause him to become suicidal? Why in the world would simply Absalom choosing the advice of someone else cause Ahithophel to believe that his life was no longer worth living? For him to get to the point that he says, okay, you're not going to follow my advice? Fine, I'll saddle my donkey, go to my hometown, put my affairs in order, and then hang myself. Why in the world would this guy do this? Give you one more verse, and it will put all of this in context. This is a very obscure verse. It is found in 2 Samuel chapter 23, and it is a list of men who are part of the elite fighting force of David. These men were known simply as the 30. They were the bodyguards for King David. They were the secret service of the day. These were the very best fighters in Israel, and their job was to protect the king, even if it meant giving their own life in protection of the king. And in that list, here is what we find. One of those was Eliam, son of Ahithophel the Gilonite. Does that name ring a bell? Iliam? You remember what we read earlier? David says to the servant, go to that particular house and I want you to find out who that girl is, that beautiful girl in that house. And I want you to come back and tell me exactly what you discovered. Tell me who she is. And the servant comes back and says, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. Eliam was the father of Bathsheba. Ahithophel was the father of Eliam. Ahithophel was the father, the grandfather of Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the granddaughter of Ahithophel. Ahithophel was Bathsheba's pawpaw. <laughs> Do you get the picture here? As most of you know, we have two sons and, and two daughters. And I love all my children equally. However, there is something unique about the relationship between a dad and his daughter. They just have this way of somehow getting out of me exactly what they want. Uh, they have this thing they can do that will turn my no's to maybes and my maybes to yeses. And I can't explain it. The way that they do it, it's just different than the way that I relate to my sons. But they just have this this way about them. And although I'm not there yet, from what I've been told, the way I feel about my daughters, take that and you put it on steroids, and that's how a grandfather feels about his granddaughter. Every grandfather I know, including the two grandfathers of my daughters, will open their wallets wide for their granddaughters. They will do anything in the world for their granddaughters except change a diaper. But anything other than that, they will do. They will move heaven and earth for their granddaughters. They love, love, love their granddaughters. Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. He watched her grow up. He bounced her on his knee. And he was so incre incredibly proud of the beautiful young woman that she had become. 
And he was so happy for her. And this young man that she married, Uriah, this military man, this this individual who was willing to serve his country, this man of impeccable character, and he knew they were going to start a family soon. And he was so incredibly happy for her. And he loved Bathsheba. She was absolutely the apple of his eye. Then he had to sit there and just watch as King David brought his granddaughter into the castle and committed this sin with her and then callously had her husband killed on the battlefield. He had to sit by and watch as David had no regard for the feelings of anyone else, no regard for the lives of anyone else. David was only interested in his own wants and his own physical needs to the point that he was willing to violate his granddaughter in this way. Ahithophel had served faithfully as as his advisor for years. Uh, Bathsheba's father, Eliam, was one of his bodyguards, a man who had pledged to give his life, if it came down to it, to protect the king. And yet David took neither of those things into consideration When he wanted what he wanted, and he had Bathsheba come to the castle, and he did that whole plan where he had her husband killed, David was only concerned with himself. And Ahithophel fumed over it. Now, externally, there was nothing he could do. He had to smile and act like everything was fine. David was king. David had absolute power. It's not like he could really do anything to David. He couldn't vote him out of office. He couldn't call the local DA and say, I'd like to press charges. He couldn't call Ken Nugent and say, I'm suing this guy for what he has, what he has done to my family. He couldn't. He had to just sit by and wait. And while he waited, internally, he seethed. While he waited, in his mind, he had taken a dagger and stabbed it into the heart of King David a thousand times. Over and over in his mind, he had enacted revenge against David for what he had done to his granddaughter and to his family. And all he could do was simply sit and wait and hope that an opportunity would present itself for him to be able to get revenge after King David. Well, eventually that opportunity came knocking. David's own flesh and blood, his son, rebelled against David, mounted an army, drove David out of the castle, sent David on the run, and Ahithophel was able to stay there and watch this happen. And once David was on the run, Ahithophel quickly let Absalom know, hey, I am your man. If there's anything that you need, if there's anything that you want me to do, I am here. What is it that you need? What is it you want me to do? And Absalom, and, and Absalom says, hey, tell me what to do next. And Ahithophel said, I'll tell you exactly what to do next. Here's what you need to do. You need to take your father's concubines and you need to go up onto the roof where this whole thing started in view of all of Israel. You go up onto the roof of the palace and there on the roof of the palace, you sleep with your father's concubines and everyone will see it and word will get to David and it will crush him that his own son has done this to me. And so that's exactly what happens. Absalom does that, word gets to David 
that he had slept with his father's concubines on the roof of the palace. And then he says, what do you want me to do next? Hithophel says, I'll tell you what to do next. You hunt him down and you strike David, but only David. Do not go after his bodyguards. Do not go after any of the other men. You kill David and David alone. And at this point, Ahithophel is just salivating. His plan is falling into place. Everything is fitting together perfectly. And he just waits on Absalom to give the order to muster the troops, to send the soldiers into battle. But he doesn't take that advice. Instead, he takes the advice of another guy. And Ahithophel, who is older and wiser, sees the hesitation of Absalom, and he knows. He knows what will happen. And in fact, he knows what eventually does happen. What happens is, is that David's able to get organized. He's able to rally troops to him. He's able to turn. He's able to battle against Absalom. He's able to defeat Absalom's army. Uh, ultimately, Absalom himself dies, and David is able to take his rightful place as king once again. Ahithophel knows all this is coming. And so what does he do? He saddles his donkey. He rides to his hometown. He gets his affairs in order. And he hangs himself. He was so consumed with bitterness and rage that when his plan to get back at King David failed, for him, life was no longer worth living. His whole life was devoted to revenge against David for what he had done. And when that was no longer possible, for him, life was no longer worth living. When I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina, we had a man in our church whose wife had been murdered several years before. It was one of those senseless murders. She came home to her apartment as the guy was robbing it. Uh, she honestly would have given him anything in the apartment. However, he was worried that she would be able to identify him, and so he shot her. Uh, eventually, the police caught the man, and he went to trial, and he was given life in prison. Uh, this individual in our church was so furious that the guy did not get the death penalty. Uh, he and his sister were extremely close. They had actually grown up as missionary kids together, and so many times they were living in a country where they were the only two who spoke English. So they were not only brother and sister, but they were best friends. And when this guy murdered his sister, it took a part of him, and he hated this man who had done this to him. Absolutely hated him. He was consumed with bitterness over what this guy had done. Tried everything in the world to get the case reconsidered so that he could get the death penalty. Was furious that he had not received the death penalty and he was getting to live while his sister was dead. Then he said one day he realized that all of the bitterness inside him was akin to him going into the kitchen reaching under the, the cabinets, pulling out a bottle of bleach, opening that bottle, taking a big drink from that bottle of bleach, setting it down, and then looking at the guy and saying, see, take that. The guy didn't care that he was bitter and angry. It was killing him, and it had no effect on this other guy. And so eventually, after a whole lot of prayer, after a whole lot of grace on God's part, after a lot of counsel, 
This guy managed in his heart to forgive the individual who had murdered his sister. He called the prison and he made an appointment to go and visit with this man. He showed up and he walked into the room and this prisoner came and sat. The glass partition was dividing them. He picked up the phone. The prisoner picked up the phone and he said, I want you to know who I am. You murdered my sister years ago. Here's what I want you to know. I forgive you. I forgive you. He said the man looked at him, shrugged his shoulders, took the phone, hung it up, and walked away. But he said, I didn't care because I did not do it for him. I did it for me. I cannot go on with life with this bitterness in my heart. I had to forgive this man, not for him, but for me. One day, Peter came to Jesus and said, Jesus, how many times should I forgive those who hurt me? Peter had been watching Jesus, and he saw the way that Jesus dealt with others. And so Peter, quite proud of the lessons that he had learned, said to Jesus, how many times should I forgive? Up to seven times? It's quite generous, right, Jesus? If they offend me once, if they offend me twice, three times, up to six, seven times if they hurt me? Should I forgive them? Jesus said, no, Peter. No, not seven times, but 70 times seven. What? Jesus, that much? I'm supposed to forgive them that many times? Jesus said, as often as they hurt you, you need to forgive them. Now, that doesn't mean that you allow them to hurt you, There may be times that you have to have separation and put a whole lot of distance between you and another individual. It doesn't mean that you continue to allow yourself to be hurt or abused. However, you need to forgive them for what they have done to you. Not for them, Jesus said, but for you so that you can move on with life, so that anger and bitterness do not consume you. There are some of you in here, and you need to forgive. You need to forgive her for what she did to you. You need to forgive him for just how much he hurt you. Not for their sake, but for yours. So that anger and bitterness do not rule your life. And you can move on, and you can be all that God has called you to be.